Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We do provide a children's church for ages 2 through 6. That is optional. Uh, Parents, if you want your children to go to children's church, the children can go to the back of the sanctuary, and the teachers will take them from there to the classroom that is next to the library. We also are showing uh, the the service on the screen in the the library, if that is helpful uh, to families. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you will find our text on page 952. And I do encourage you uh, to take out the outline provided in the bulletin and to take notes there and then later on to use the discussion questions that are found on the back side of that outline. We have a problem with exalting man. And we see this in the lives of Christ's disciples back in Mark chapter 9. I want you to hold on to 1 Corinthians and turn back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 30 and following. Um, Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, uh, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days He will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask Him. And they came to Capernaum, and when He was in the house, He asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Here Mark wants us to see the great inconsistency between what Christ taught and how the disciples acted. Christ was foretelling that He would lay down His life at the cross. And meanwhile, His disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. Look at verse 35. And He sat down and called the twelve. And He said to them, If anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. And this is what Christ was doing in going to the cross. He was going to the cross as the servant of all. He was going to the cross to serve by laying down his his life as a ransom for many. The disciples' standard of greatness was all wrong. Their standard of greatness was the world's standard of greatness. And true greatness, according to Christ, is humbling oneself and being a servant of all. Jesus elaborates on this in chapter 10. Look in chapter 10 at verse 42. 42, And Jesus called them to Him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Christ calls His disciples here to reject the world's standards of greatness. And Christ defines true greatness for His disciples as being like their Master, who came to serve by giving His life for them at the cross. Let me ask, are are our lives 
as fully shaped by Christ's teaching as they ought to be. If the Corinthians, to whom Paul wrote, honestly answered this question, they would have to say no. And their lives were not as fully shaped by Christ's teaching as they ought to have been. When the Apostle Paul writes the letter to the Corinthians that we are studying, the Corinthians have been doing the same sort of things that Christ's disciples did when they argued about who was the greatest. In turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Corinthians' arguments looked a little more spiritual than the arguments of Christ's disciples on the way. But the essence was the same. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1.10 I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. This looked more spiritual than what Jesus' disciples were doing when they were arguing about who was greatest. But the essence is the same. It's using the world standards of greatness. It's exalting man. The Corinthian church was engaging in what we can call party spirit. The division of the church into different rival parties, each flocking around and exalting a different church leader. The Corinthians were comparing the church's leaders using worldly standards and then boasting about their connection with the leader whom they viewed as superior. Or they would boast that they they didn't do this, but they just followed Christ, making themselves just as puffed up as the others. The Corinthians were not comparing the doctrine being taught. All these teachers, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, all these teachers taught the same doctrine. The apostolic gospel of Christ. But the Corinthians were comparing these church leaders, these church preachers, by worldly standards. In verses 10 through 17, Paul rebuked the church's party spirit. And as the chapter continues, Paul is seeking to demolish party spirit by showing how antithetical it is to two things. First of all, he has shown how antithetical party spirit is to the content of the gospel. That was in verses 18 through 25 when he talked about the word of the cross. That is foolishness to the world, uh, but is God's wisdom to those who are being saved. In Mark 9 through 10, Christ highlighted the antithesis between his disciples' argument about who is the greatest and the cross. And Paul likewise has shown the antithesis between party spirit and the word of the cross. Paul also seeks in this chapter to demolish party spirit by showing how antithetical it is to God's sovereign calling of the Corinthians. And that's what our text is about. God's sovereign calling and how antithetical it is to the party spirit that was seen in the Corinthian church And that can be seen in many churches today. The passage that we're about to look at about God's sovereign calling is a passage that is meant to humble our pride and to exalt God's grace in salvation. That we would boast in the God of our salvation. 
we do have a tendency to be like Christ's disciples in Mark 9 who argued about who was the greatest. It might not look the same, the same words might not come out of our mouths, but we have a tendency to do the same, to have the same heart out of which came that argument about who was the greatest. We have a tendency to be like the Corinthians in our text with their party spirits, exalting man, using worldly standards of greatness. And the Holy Spirit has given us this passage of Scripture that He might work through it in our hearts and lives, bringing about needed changes that we might truly glorify the Lord as individual members of the church and as the church corporately. I'm going to read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-31. through 31. Please stand in honor of the Word of God if you are able. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. We see in this passage four truths about God's sovereign calling. Four truths about God's sovereign calling. The first one is in verse 26, that His sovereign calling is not based on worldly standards. It's not based on worldly standards. Look closely at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Now, Paul mentioned this calling back in verse 24. I want us to go back to that previous context, but I want us to go all the way back to verse 21. In 21, Paul wrote, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, that is, the word of the cross, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So in verse 24, we study that phrase, to those who are called. When God saves a sinner... He brings the gospel to them, and He works in their heart through the gospel, sovereignly and effectually calling them to come to Christ and to enter into all the spiritual blessings that one receives in Christ. And so the Christian can be described as someone whom God has called. In our text, the apostle tells the believers in verse 26, "...for consider your calling, brothers." Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul says uh, that uh, when we were called and converted to Christ, not many of us were wise according to worldly standards. 
Well, the New American Standard is more literal here. Not many wise according to the flesh. Meaning wise according to fleshly standards. Essentially wise according to worldly standards. Paul is saying that not many of us were learned as the world defines it. Not many of us had advanced degrees. Not many of us had great intelligence. Paul goes on and says, not many were powerful. Meaning not many had powerful positions in society. Not many had great influence over others. And then Paul adds, not many were of noble birth. Meaning not many were born into the higher ranks in society. The point here is that God's calling of individuals is not based on the things which man elevates, like wisdom, power, and rank. When I was in sixth grade in a private school, we boys played basketball at every recess. The first thing that we would do after we got to the basketball court was to line up. And the two team captains took turns calling individuals to be on their team. And you were always standing on that line. You were always hoping that you were going to be the next person who would be called to be on that captain's team. This calling was based on how good we were at basketball. Those who were best at basketball were called first. Those who were the worst at basketball were called last. It was based on how good we were at basketball. But God's calling is not like this. The fact that not many of us were wise, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, shows that God showed no regard for man's values. The distinctions that men make between themselves and use to elevate one man over another mean nothing to God. God did not look at the wise and think, how useful they will be to me. God did not look at the powerful and think, how influential they will be in the expansion of my kingdom. God did not look at those of noble birth and think, what a drawing piece they will be for the church. The world would use such standards, but God clearly has not. Let's just look around at each other. He has not. So, whom does the church reflect when it acts like the church in Corinth, arguing with one another, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, no, I am of Christ. That church doesn't reflect God. That church reflects the world. For God's calling clearly is not based on the world's standards. This is the first truth our text teaches about God's sovereign calling. It is not based on worldly standards. The second truth about God's sovereign calling is that it is not, I'm sorry, that it is designed to nullify worldly standards. It is designed, it is designed to nullify worldly standards. Look at verse 27. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now, back in verse 26 that we just looked at, Paul spoke of the Corinthians having been called by God. Now in verses 27 and 28, he speaks of them having been chosen by God. 
Understand that God's calling individuals is based on His prior choice of them. We see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, which says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. We read of God's choice in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The Apostle Paul teaches the Christian that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. This choosing is a sovereign choosing, a gracious choosing, a merciful choosing of individuals for all the blessings of salvation. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to respond to the gospel of Christ. But God in His grace and mercy has chosen us, purposing to overcome our resistance to the gospel, purposing to give us a new heart and new life, to open our heart to the gospel, to draw us to Christ, to grant us repentance and faith. Our text says God chose those who were foolish in the eyes of the world in order to shame the wise. That He chose those who are weak in the eyes of the world in order to shame the strong. Those words, to shame, are translated by the King James as to confound. You will find that, that word to confound in some of the, the older Christian writings. God chose those who were foolish in the eyes of the world in order to shame or to confound the wise. Those who are wise or strong in the eyes of the world are exalted by the world. The world turns them into celebrities. But God chose just the opposite kind of people for the purpose of shaming the wise and the strong. To shame them is to expose the emptiness of their wisdom and strength. It is to show the foolishness of exalting the wise and the strong. It is to show that their wisdom and strength get them nowhere with God. God's purpose of shaming the wise is similar to what we saw back in the previous verses about the word of the cross. Go back to verse 18. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the, of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now our text about God choosing the foolish in order to shame the wise, choosing the weak in order to shame the strong, this does not mean that God prefers foolish people over wise people, or weak people over strong people. It does mean that God does not prefer one person over another. It does mean that the majority of the people whom God has chosen are foolish and weak in the eyes of the world. And that this is in order to expose the emptiness of what the world exalts. And to show the foolishness of exalting those whom the world exalts. In verse 28, we read, God shows what is low and despised in the world 
even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. In other words, God shows people who are lowly in the eyes of the world, whom the world looks upon with contempt, who are nothings in the world's eyes, in order to bring to nothing those who are exalted as being all that. Those words to bring to nothing are translated by the New American Standard as to nullify. Uh, to nullify them. God's choosing the majority of the Corinthian believers had the same design as the cross itself. To save them, and at the same time to shame and nullify the values in which the Corinthians boasted. Well, This leads right into the third truth about God's sovereign calling. The third truth is that God's sovereign calling is, destroy, is, is designed to destroy human boasting. It's designed to destroy human boasting. Why has God purposed to nullify worldly standards? It is in order to destroy human boasting. Verse 29 is in the, the middle of the sentence, so let's go back to verse 28 to see how it flows out of that. Verse 28, God shows what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The Corinthians were boasting. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. They were boasting according to worldly standards. They were boasting in man. They had spiritualized worldly boasting. The apostle here in our text is bringing them face to face with the design of the cross, and the design of God's calling that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's the purpose of God saving through the cross, and that is God's purpose of His sovereign calling, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has designed salvation in such a way that no one can stand in God's sight, and attribute his or her conversion or salvation to his or her own wisdom. God has designed salvation in such a way that no one can stand in God's sight and attribute their conversion to their own power. No one can attribute their salvation or conversion to their own birth or their own rank or anything else by which one is distinguished from their fellow man. God deliberately chose the foolish things of the world, the cross and the Corinthian believers, so that He could remove forever from every human being any possible grounds on their part of standing in God's presence with something in their hands to gain God's favor. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Not a single thing that any of us possess will advantage us before the living God. By choosing the lowly Corinthians, God declared that He has forever ruled out every imaginable human system of reaching God and gaining His favor. That He has obliterated all human grounds of boasting. God's purpose is that no human being would boast in the presence of God, but that sinful man would instead completely cast himself in trust upon Christ. Why has God purposed? that no human being would boast in His presence? Because God Himself deserves the praise and glory. When we boast in man, we ascribe to man what rightly belongs to God and to God alone. 
And this leads right into the fourth truth regarding God's sovereign calling. The fourth truth is that God's sovereign calling will result in the glorification of God. It will result in the glorification of God. Look at verse 30. And because of Him, the Him is God, and because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This teaches the believer that it is because of God that he or she is in Christ. A Christian is someone who is in Christ. And notice that terminology there in verse 30. Because of Him you are in Christ Jesus. A Christian is someone who is in Christ. When God saves a sinner, God unites that sinner to Christ in a permanent union. And that person's union with Christ is spoken of in the New Testament with the words, in Christ. And you'll find those words, in Christ, uh, many places in the New Testament. There are two aspects to the believer's union with Christ. The first aspect is the representative aspect. An example is what we read in Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that is by Adam's disobedience, the many, that is all who are united to Adam, who descend from him, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That man's obedience is the obedience of Christ. By Christ's obedience the many, that is all who are in Christ, will be made righteous. So the believer is in Christ, is joined to Christ, united to Christ. Christ is our head. Christ is our representative. Christ obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf. When we believed in Christ, we were joined to Christ, and His perfect righteousness was counted in as our righteousness, because we are united to Him. He shares His perfect righteous standing with us. So there's a representative aspect to union with Christ. There also is a vital aspect to our union with Christ. A vital aspect. It's spoken of in John 15.5. When Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. We can do nothing as far as, as pleasing God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we are united to Jesus Christ, we are united to Him like a branch is united to a, a vine. And that vine gives life to the branch. And because that branch is connected to that vine, that branch bears good fruit. And so as believers, we are united to Christ. And as we abide in Christ... We bear much fruit. His life flows into us. He empowers us through our union with Him. He empowers us to, to bear good fruit. He enables us to, to do the good works for which we have been saved. He enables us to, to live a life that is pleasing to Christ. Now if we're cut off from that, 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 that vine, we can do nothing. But in Christ, uh, we can do 
those things that Christ calls us to, to do because He is our life. Our, our life comes from Him. So there's a vital aspect to union with Christ. Now in our text here in verse 30, he says, And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. He's saying that your conversion and your saving union with Christ are owing entirely to God. Not, they are not due to yourself. Uh, they, they are not due to your wisdom. They're not due to your knowledge. They're not due to your understanding. Your conversion and saving union with Christ are not due to your power. Not due to your strength. Not due to your effort. They're not due to the family that you were born into, that taught you the things of God. The family that trusted in the Lord is not the family. It's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. It's solely because of God's grace, mercy, and working that you, O Christian, are in Christ Jesus. Now, you may object to this and say that you repented and believed. Now, it is true that in conversion, the sinner repents and believes. One one must repent of their sin and believe on Christ in order to be saved. And God doesn't repent for us. He doesn't believe for us. It is true that in conversion, the sinner repents and believes. But the Bible teaches that your repentance and faith resulted from God's sovereign, gracious working in you. We read in Acts 11.18, when they heard these things, that is, the Jewish believers hearing about how Cornelius and his household heard the gospel and were saved, these, these Gentiles. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. These Jewish believers looked at the new faith, of Cornelius and the other Gentiles who were with him when they heard Peter preach the gospel to them? And what do they ascribe their repentance to? They don't ascribe it to Cornelius and those who repented. They look at it and say, God has granted them repentance that leads to life. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, Paul takes the gospel to what we call Europe. He goes to Philippi. And he finds a small group by the riverside. Lydia is one of them. Acts 16.14 One who heard us, what would they hear Paul and those who were with him talking about? They'd hear them talking about Christ. They'd hear them speaking the gospel. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Why did Lydia pay attention to Paul? Was it because Paul used worldly wisdom to make the message attractive to Lydia? No. Lydia paid attention to the gospel message because the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. In John 6.44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus is saying, No one in their depraved condition, the condition that all of us are in apart from Christ, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's the hold that sin has upon our hearts. 
upon our, our will. Though the gospel is the best of news, no sinner who hears that has the ability to respond to that in repentance and faith. We're spiritually dead. Sin has a hold upon our, our mind, our hearts, our lives. So Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So when someone comes to Christ, who do we glorify for that? Do we glorify the person who came to Christ? No. We glorify the Father who drew them to Christ. In John 15, 16, Jesus said to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. There is a sense in which the disciples heard that call from Jesus at the very beginning, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And and they responded. But Jesus says, ultimately, you did not choose me, but I chose you. The only reason why you came and followed me was because I first chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. Coming back to our text, in verse 30, And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, now this is similar to something that Paul said back in verses 23 and 24. In 23 he said, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And now in verse 30, he says, Because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Let's take one at a time these four things that are stated that Christ has become to us through union with Him. First of all, Christ has become to us wisdom from God. Paul is speaking here when he speaks of Christ becoming wisdom from God to us. He's speaking of saving knowledge of God. In John 17, 3, Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing the Son. When the sinner is joined to Christ in salvation, that sinner comes to know God through Christ. Before being united to Christ, you were foolish. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 speaks of what happened in the fall. It says, They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Before we knew Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we were fools in God's sight. But when God brings you to know Him in salvation, you become wise. Because true wisdom starts with the knowledge of God. When God joins you to Christ, He opens your eyes to the truth, and He brings you into relationship with Himself. And so Paul can say in our text, Because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. But it doesn't end there with wisdom from God. Through union with Christ, He also has become to us righteousness. Christ has become to us righteousness. Righteousness is the undeserved stance 
of a right standing with God, despite one's guilt from having broken God's law. It is a declared righteousness. It is Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to the believer by God's grace. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the Father. He only did the Father's will all throughout His whole life, going all the way through, laying down His life in obedience to the Father at the cross. Through union with Christ, Christ becomes to us righteousness. His perfect righteousness, seen in His obedient life to the Father, His righteousness is imputed to us. By God's grace, His righteousness is counted as our righteousness. It's a declared righteousness, an imputed righteousness. By virtue of union with Christ, He becomes our righteousness before God. And so we are found in Christ, righteous in God's sight. Through union with Christ, He also has become to us sanctification. That's the third term here uh, in this list. He has become to us sanctification. Sanctification is being made holy. From the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive His Spirit, the Holy Spirit. When you are united to Christ, you don't have to do something in order to then get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes with Christ. When you're united to Christ, you become a recipient of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of Christ begins, as He indwells you, He begins a work of sanctification in you, making you, in the way that you live your life, increasingly holy as God is holy. The Spirit is at work to transform us into Christ's likeness, from one degree of glory to another. The Holy Spirit produces His fruit in our lives. Think about Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit begins to produce that fruit in our lives in a growing way. The Spirit of Christ will complete this work of sanctification when we are presented before Christ as holy, without spot or blemish, when Jesus Christ comes for us. We're told in our text that through union with Christ, He has become to us sanctification. And fourthly, through union with Him, He has become to us redemption. Now now this word redemption sometimes refers to Christ's death. At the cross, Christ redeemed us. He paid the price, uh, the the ransom, uh, to free us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. We were redeemed at the cross. But here, when this term redemption follows the terms wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, it refers to something else. Not the cross work of Christ, which Paul mentioned in the previous section that we studied before. Paul sometimes uses this word redemption to speak of the believer's future glorification at the time of Christ's return. For example, in Ephesians 4.30, we read, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our redemption when Jesus Christ comes again. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the future day of redemption. Turn over to Romans chapter 8, where Paul speaks about this future redemption. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 23. In verse 23, we read, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He speaks of a future redemption of our bodies when Jesus Christ comes again. In passages like this, redemption speaks of the believer's future full deliverance from sin and its effects. And it especially has in mind how we will receive a glorified body. The wages of sin is death. Because of the sin of our first father, Adam, in the garden, we have bodies that are in the middle of dying. Our bodies are headed towards death. We have perishable bodies. But there is coming a day for the believer when Jesus Christ will come again and our bodies will be redeemed. We will be delivered completely from sin and its effects, which includes the effect of sin on the body. If we have already died, and our soul is with the Lord in heaven, when Jesus Christ comes again, our body will be raised. It will be raised as a glorified body, an imperishable body that will not be subject to death, a body that will be perfectly suited to live in the Lord's presence forever and ever. And it will never be affected by sin and the consequences of sin in any way. And if we are alive when Jesus Christ comes for us, then our body will be changed in that moment. It will be glorified. We'll have a glorified body, as I've just described. That is the redemption of our bodies, when our bodies will be set free um, from the bondage that they currently are under uh, to the curse that has come upon this world because of sin. In the future day of redemption, we will be changed so that we will be without sin. Right now, in sanctification, we are being transformed to be more like God, but there is still sin that we deal with. We don't arrive to some position of sinless perfection in this life. There's always sin that we are struggling with. Sin in our, in our, our heart. There's always more change that has to, to occur in our lives for us to be like Christ. But when, we're, when we see Christ, 1 John 3 says, when we see Him, we will be like Him because we'll see Him as, as He is. We will be transformed, completely delivered from sin so that we will never, ever sin in any way not just outwardly, not just with our words, but even in our hearts, in our intentions and purposes. We will be perfectly pure as God is pure, as Christ is pure. In a glorified body that will never again face the effects of sin, the consequences of sin. I think that's what Paul has in mind. You come back to our text, because of the order of these words, the context... And he says, Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, that's justification, and sanctification and redemption, that's glorification. Our text says, Christ became to us redemption. 
Union with Christ guarantees the redemption of our bodies. We don't have to say, well, I hope my body will be redeemed. I hope everything will be okay when, when I die. No, Christ guarantees our redemption. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 21-22, For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, that's Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The subject is the future resurrection. In Christ shall all be made alive. All who are united to Christ by virtue of that union with Christ will be made alive. Christ shares his rights, has already shared His righteousness with us. On that day, He will share His resurrection life with us in the body. Union with Christ guarantees the redemption of our bodies. Thus, through union with Christ, we receive the full range of spiritual blessings purchased for us at the cross. From wisdom that is being brought to know God, to the righteousness received in justification, to the Holy Spirit's ongoing work of sanctifying us, and to glorification. With all this in mind, let's reread 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because of God and God alone, you are the recipient of all these glorious blessings that Paul has spoken of. Because of God's good pleasure, you are the recipient of these blessings. The divinely intended result is that we who are in Christ will boast in the Lord and in Him alone. That we will put our confidence in Him and Him alone. That we will exalt Him and Him alone. That we will speak of His greatness and His alone. That we will praise Him and Him alone. The divinely intended result is the humbling of our pride and the exaltation of God and His grace. And this should not surprise us. For Paul is summarizing Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. I want us to go back to Jeremiah to see what Paul has in mind in our text, Jeremiah chapter 9, he did say in our text, as it is written, I'm going to show you what he had in mind. But before we look at Jeremiah 9, those exact verses, I want us to get some context by going back to chapter 8, verse 8. Look at Jeremiah 8, verse 8. How can you say we are wise? And the law of the Lord is with us. But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. Does that sound familiar? Remember God's purpose? He chose the foolish to shame the wise. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Now go forward to chapter 9, verse 23. Chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, 
that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That's what Paul has in mind in our text. In 1 Corinthians 1, 31, after he's said all that he has said, and he says, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is nothing new. It was in the Old Testament. We read in Galatians chapter 6, verse 13, Paul says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The book of Galatians, Paul is writing to a people that have been infected by false teachers. False teachers who exalted man's works of the law like circumcision. Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Circumcision counts for nothing. Works of the law count for nothing. What counts is a new creation. What counts is a sovereign, gracious work of God in salvation. Well, let's put together everything that we have seen. Looking one last time at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-31, let's put this all together in our mind. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For the most part... God has chosen for salvation and called to Christ people that we would never expect. Because His choice and calling are not based on anything advantageous in us, but are based on His grace. Outside of Christ, all of us are undeserving sinners, rebels who deserve God's eternal judgment, transgressors of His law who must suffer the law's penalty, eternal death. But God in His great mercy and grace is saving a people unto His eternal glory. The essence of our sin is that we exalt created things rather than exalting God. And God has divine salvation in such a way that those who are saved would boast not in man but in the Lord alone. And this is why boasting, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, oh, I am of Christ, is so out of place. When your boasting is in the God of your salvation and in Him alone, there's no place for pride, no place for quarreling, no place for divisiveness. As believers, we need to be humbled by the passage that we have studied this morning. Let let me ask you, brothers and sisters, whom do you credit for your salvation? I, I know you credit God for your salvation, But do you credit God alone for your salvation? Are you crediting 99% to 
to God and 1% to self? 99% to God and 1% to someone else who influenced you for Christ? We need to be humbled by this passage. This it says it's by God and God alone that we are in Christ Jesus. 100% of the credit goes to the God of our salvation. 100%. We're to be humbled by this passage. And as believers, in light of what we've seen here, we need to boast in the God of our salvation. And this is one of the reasons why God's Word instructs us to sing in our worship services. We sing about Christ. We sing about our Savior. We sing about the cross. Why do we do so? Our singing is designed to boast in the God of our salvation. God's Word instructs us to sing together as a church, together praising the God of our salvation. Psalm 111 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. It's not enough in the privacy of your own home to boast in the God of your salvation. The Bible teaches us to give thanks to the Lord in the company of the upright. To give thanks to Him in the congregation. Boasting in the God of our salvation should be part of our conversation when we gather as the church. What should we hear as we walk through this building after services? We should hear brothers and sisters exalting Christ, praising Christ, thanking Christ for His saving, sanctifying work in our lives. And boasting in the God of our salvation is also part of our witness to unbelievers. In Mark chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, we read what happened after Jesus cast that legion of demons out of that man. In Mark chapter 5, verse 18, says, As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. That's part of our witness. We should be telling unbelievers what Christ has done for us in saving our souls. We should, in conversation with unbelievers, boast in the God of our salvation. Every day, we should boast in the Lord in prayer, thanking and praising God for the glorious salvation that He has given us of His grace. When boasting in the Lord is part of your private prayer life, it will more naturally come forth from your mouth in conversation with others. Friend, let me ask you, have you been saved from your sins by the Lord Jesus Christ? Our passage has been speaking much about salvation. Have you been saved from your sins by the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have not been saved, know that you need to be saved. There is a reason, my friend, why your conscience at times bothers you. 
Romans chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says that Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God has a law for how we, who have been made in His image, are to live. And the Bible says that God has written His law upon our hearts. And one day, God will judge us according to His law. He will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is why, at times, your conscience bothers you. God's given you a conscience. It goes hand in hand with God's law written on your heart. Your conscience bothers you at times because you've broken God's law. And your conscience is an alarm system that God has built into you. Testifying that that you have broken the law of your Creator, to whom you are accountable. And that you deserve to die for transgressing His law. That's why your conscience bothers you sometimes at night. Or after you do such and such. It tells you you've broken God's law. All of us, the Bible says, have broken God's law. And that's what the Bible calls sin. All of us, apart from Christ, are guilty before God. Guilty before the divine judge. And the penalty for sin, according to the word of God, is eternal death. Eternal judgment in hell. You need to be saved. Every human being needs to be saved. You need the wisdom, the righteousness, the sanctification, and the redemption that we saw in our text in verse 30. That, are, that, that come to us by virtue of union with Christ. You need that gift of righteousness. You don't have a righteousness before God. Before God you are unrighteous. You need this righteousness of Christ imputed to you. You need all the blessings of salvation that, that come through Christ. Our text teaches that they are found in only one place. They are only found in Christ Jesus. Not in your works, not in another religion, only in Christ Jesus. The one who died on the cross for sinners and who rose on the third day 2,000 years ago. And there is, our text tells us there is only one way to be joined to Christ and to receive the blessings of salvation, and that is the grace of God. Nothing of self will avail to gain God's favor. Nothing of man will avail to gain God's favor. In fact, it hinders us from turning to Christ because we put confidence in it. I implore you, my friend, cast yourself now completely on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. That means to confess your sins to God, to turn from your sins to Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting in Him alone for salvation. Submitting to Him as Lord of all. And you will be saved. And after you are saved, boast not in anything of self, but entirely in the God of your salvation, because it is of Him and Him alone that you are in Christ Jesus. God alone is worthy. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, all we have to contribute to salvation is our sin. 
We don't have a righteousness of our own to hold up before you. We're spiritually bankrupt before you, spiritually dead before you in trespasses and sins. And we thank you, Father, for your abundant grace and mercy. Shown us in Christ, proclaimed in the gospel of Christ. We thank you that Jesus Christ died there upon the cross for sinners, paying the penalty that we deserve for our sins. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you suffered the wrath of God that was due us. As you bore our sins on that cross. We thank you, Father, for raising your Son in victory. As he had said those words, it is finished. And that was shown in that you were raising your Son from the grave. That you had accepted the sacrifice of Christ, that He paid that price in full at Calvary. We thank You that You raised Your Son in victory that we might have eternal life in Him. We thank You that salvation is not by works, lest anyone should boast. We thank You that salvation is by Your grace. Oh Lord, I pray for those here this morning who are not in Christ, Lord, that you would open their hearts to the gospel, that you would draw them to Christ, that you would call them to Christ, you would call them to enter into all the blessings that are in Christ of salvation. Oh Lord, would you not save souls this morning? I pray, Father, for each believer that you would remind us throughout the week, throughout our life, to boast entirely in you and your grace. May we be humbled by the truths that we have seen this morning, and may boasting in you alone be the result. For you are eternally worthy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.